You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Gluttony is the second offender in our lineup of seven deadly sins, a list of trespasses that gained great notoriety in the Middle Ages. And it continues to readily capture the imagination even in a secular Western culture. I mean, Dan Savage of The Stranger, for heaven's sakes, has a book on the seven deadly sins. Brad Pitt was in a movie about him. But the challenge we face with a sin like gluttony is to see the past stereotypes and to see past stereotypes and preconceptions to the actual offender. Jesus faced this challenge. Do you remember in uh, Luke 7, Jesus' enemies came and confronted him and Jesus said, what is up with you people? Uh, John goes out in the desert and hardly eats and you say he has a demon. Me, you call me a glutton. And a drunkard because I sit with tax collectors and sinners. Now let's be honest, isn't this the exact sort of wild extremes that our Western secular culture still imagines when we talk about gluttony? Hedonism on the one hand, swinging over to deprivation on the other. We wildly swing between grotesque overconsumption of food on one hand and obsession with changing our relationship to food and our bodies on the other. I I pulled out a notebook that my eight-year-old niece had borrowed when she was at our house. And and she and her uh, sister Hannah and her siblings were playing doctor's office. Doctor's office, people, not doctor. Doctor's office. (laughs) And my eight-year-old niece was actually charting uh, the, the, the things that were coming in. So each one of these has a name, a date here, which is why they're here. And then it says solve by. Uh, so the first one, name, Garfield, as in the cat. Date, 2014. Here, trouble, you can't stop eating, exclamation point. Solve by taking food away, exclamation point. <laughs> now, Here is the expected sermon on gluttony. Curb your appetite, stop eating so much, moderate, amen. (laughs) And you can get that sermon reading shape or men's health. (laughs) So where's the gospel in it? Where's the gospel? Do you remember that Jesus goes on after calling attention to the accusation that John is demon-possessed and Jesus himself is a glutton? And says something I find so enticing. He goes on and he says, yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Or as Luke puts it, that's Matthew's version. Luke says, wisdom is vindicated by her children. What on earth does that have to do with gluttony? Well, as with most things, a story, I think, is the very best way to see it. And the story this week is one of my very favorite boy meets girl stories in the Bible. Because the boy is King David during his years in the wilderness before he took the throne in Jerusalem while he was on the run with Saul. And he had a group of of men traveling with him had grown to about 600 or so at the time of this story. And based on the way the story goes, some of them had wives. This is a huge group with David, uh, basically illegals uh, under the radar. And the girl is Abigail, destined to become David's wife. But there's a slight problem. The wise and hospitable Abigail is married to the idiot glutton Nabal. So you can see right now, it's going to be good. (laughs) Now this comes from uh, 1 Samuel 25. I'm, I'm going to tell it to you instead of reading it, but let's pray first. Please pray with me. Lord, we love stories, especially true stories. 
So thank you for this one we are about to hear. And in the next few moments, as I share reflections from this week, I pray for your mercy and I pray for your wisdom. Sin is deceptive and we want to be free. So may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So here's what happens. And you can, like I said, find this in 1 Samuel 25. The Bible tells us there is a man who is very rich. He has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, which would be impressive if it weren't for his name, as I told you, Nabal, which literally means foolish. If you look up foolish in the Hebrew dictionary, his, his picture is right there. He is, we are told in verse 3, surly and mean. This Calebite has a wife named Abigail who's his exact opposite. Clever and beautiful. Now as it happens, this is sheep shearing season. The time for a harvest celebration. It's a wilderness economy, you have to remember. For a man like Nabal, his herds are constantly under the threat of a plundering Bedouin tribesman. But fortunately, there are also wandering groups such as this merry band of 600 men that are with David. And they make it their business, David and his men has, have made it their business to protect the flocks and shepherds in this southern desert region. So as expected at the time of harvest, celebration at this time, David sends 10 of his men to collect the food and drink that are customarily given to needy neighbors. Customarily, that is, by everybody except Nabal. Now, David's men knew Nabal's shepherds. The servants will later tell Abigail that that David's protection in the wilderness has been a wall to them, shielding them from danger. But when the 10 messengers arrive and greet Nabal in David's name, saluting him and saying, peace be to you and peace be to your house and peace be to all that you have. And they give him a report from the wilderness as instructed by David. And they ask for whatever Nabal's hand was willing to give them to share in the feast. They may, they're met with silence. Now notice that this isn't a protection racket. They're not here to extort a heavy price for protection. All that's requested is the expected modest share in the abundance uh, that Nabal is, is enjoying. Now, the amount to be given away is completely up to the owner. And in Nabal's case, this is basically zero. The messengers wait as Nabal sizes them up. And then he says to them, who is David? There are plenty of runaway slaves in the region. Do you seriously think I'm going to share the bread and water and meat that I have prepared for my shearers and give it to a group of nowhere men? And that's it. He sends them back to David empty-handed. And David listens quietly to the messenger's report and responds decisively. Strap on your swords, he tells his wandering band. At which point these former defenders now become a danger to Nabal, who has no idea what kind of hurt he has just unleashed on himself and on his men. Well, luckily for Nabal, his wife knows exactly what is coming down because one of the young herdsmen who witnessed the scene between Nabal and the messengers made straight for Abigail warning her that Nabal had shouted insults at David's messengers, blatantly ignoring the fact that David's men had done their good deeds so well that not a single one of Nabal's flocks was lost in the grazing before shearing. 
Now, know this and consider what you should do, the young herdsman warns Abigail in verse 17 of our story. For evil has descended and decided against our master and against all his house. He is so ill-natured that no one can speak to him. Well, Abigail loses no time. While David is mustering two-thirds of his men to put on their swords and go meet uh, Nabal in battle, Abigail is gathering up whatever provisions she can. Loaves of bread, skins of wine, sheep dressed and ready to be roasted, parched grain, clusters of raisins, and cakes of figs. It's, it's modest, actually, when you compare it to the number of people she's feeding. But it's generous. Loading them on donkeys and sending them with the servants on ahead to David without breathing a word of this to her idiot of a husband. And what do you know? Rounding the corner of the valley as she comes in, coming down from the mountain, there's David. 400 of his 600 men, swords on, ready to go. And boy, does he let her have it. Nabal has returned evil for good to me, David declares to Abigail. And God do so to me and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. And at this, Abigail kneels before David. She prostrates herself, asking that her presence be accepted as an admission of guilt that she knows full well her husband will not make. She says to David, do not take seriously this ill-natured fellow, Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. You wonder how many times she's had to use this line in this marriage. But then she goes on to talk David off the ledge before he makes a choice that will mark him with blood guilt for the length of his reign. She says to him, forgive the trespass of your servant. Your life is abundantly provided for and securely held in the care of the Lord, she tells David. Let the Lord deal with fools like Nabal. And right there, disaster averted. David goes from vengeance to blessing, blessing the Lord for sending Abigail, blessing her good sense and blessing her for keeping him from blood guilt. He says to her, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there would not have been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David accepts her hospitality, receiving from her hand what she's brought him and says to her, go up to your house in peace. I've listened to you. And I will give you everything you asked. And the God-anointed king of Israel heads back out into the wilderness with the modest offering that Abigail has brought. Now, by the time that Abigail arrives home, the feast is in full swing. A feast fit for a king, ironically, laid on by a fool. Nabal is in high spirits and incredibly drunk, so Abigail leaves him to his excess and goes to bed without saying a word about her encounter with David on the road. She waits until Nabal is stone-cold sober the next morning and feeling the effects of the previous night, and then lays out the whole story. The Bible tells us it makes his heart stop, turn to stone within him. Nabal lives ten more days with a soul heavy as stone before the Lord takes his life. And when news of Nabal's death reaches David, it's happy endings all around. David is vindicated for his restraint. Nabal's evil returns back on him in divine judgment. And Abigail's wise hospitality is praised so much that David sends messengers again, this time with a marriage proposal. 
So now that you've heard the story, can you identify the glutton? I mean, it's Nabal, of course, the fool who consumes without gratitude. The fool who consumes without gratitude and quite literally dies as a result. Nabal's choices embody the sin of gluttony. See, as with lust, which George preached on last week, gluttony is a sin of the appetites. It's a sin of the flesh. But unlike lust, which offends by taking physical or mental possession of another to satisfy one's own desires. Lust says, you exist to satisfy my desires. Gluttony says, gluttony is a sin that withholds from others to satisfy our own desires. I will eat, I will consume, I will take as much as I want. And you and your needs are invisible to me. That's gluttony. Now, Nabal embodies this, of course, up until Abigail returns from her encounter with David. I mean, I guess you could argue that Nabal had been an idiot, but it certainly wasn't evil. I mean, where is the sin in refusing to pay out for services that a man never actually contracted? Why take food away from hired shepherds and give it to wandering vigilantes? David and his men were fugitive, undocumented, making their own way one step ahead of the recognized authorities. As it is in in, in many of Jesus' stories, it is in the Old Testament that initially the fool seems to be doing exactly what the wisest in the land would have done. But then Abigail comes home with the harvest celebration in full swing, a drunk and disorderly husband and a feast fit, we are told, for a king. Now it's curious, isn't it, that the excess of the feast was so great it did not suffer in the least. They didn't even miss what Abigail gave away. Did you catch that? He didn't even know it was missing. He didn't know anything was gone until his wife told him the next day. Which also makes gluttony very similar to greed. Both of those sins each desire more and more excess. But we see in the harvest feast the distinctiveness of gluttony where greed is distinguished by the desire to possess Gluttony is conspicuous by the desire to consume. So here we see the distinguishing characteristics of gluttony. Appetite, excess, withholding, and consumption. Those are the features to look for in the lineup. And so I wonder, when when do you and I embody the sin of gluttony? I mean, based on Nabal and the story we just heard, I'm going to suggest that gluttony is consuming without gratitude. Consuming without gratitude or awareness. There was not a single animal lost prior to shearing due to David's vigilance, and Nabal couldn't care less. Notice that nothing was said about Nabal's appearance. We don't know if he was fat or thin. The Bible doesn't care. And notice that there's no inherent evil in having the feast. There are feasts over and over and over, both in the Old Testament and the New. The sin was in the total and utter lack of gratitude toward David and his men. When remembering them, as Abigail did, clearly did not even make a noticeable dent in the merriment. 
And Jesus uh, seems to agree with this. Do you remember the story of uh, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Not Lazarus who died and rose from the dead, the real guy. Lazarus is, is the only person who's ever named in a parable that Jesus tells. And Jesus tells this story about a, a rich man who feasts every single day. And there's a poor man called Lazarus who's at the gate. And, 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 and Lazarus never gets a crumb from this man. And this is not simply a story of greed or indifference. This is gluttony. Jesus could have just as easily said there was a rich man who never gave any money to a poor man. But he tells a story of excess consumption without gratitude. A gratitude that would have been expressed by giving food to the beggar at the gate. See, gluttony is consuming without gratitude. And this lack of gratitude shows up in what we withhold and how we withhold it from others. Gluttony isn't simply excess and consumption. That's the story that that our culture would tell, but that's not the whole story. Gluttony is a loss of gratitude. It's a loss visible in the act of withholding. We live in a culture that makes billions of dollars working to get us to overconsume. And then billions more are working to counteract the effects of the overconsumption. And it's just a loop, isn't it? What interrupts the loop? What interrupts the loop? Abigail. Here was the loop in the story. Nabal who refuses, refuses to give to David. David who answers with violence. It's a loop. Abigail's hospitality interrupts the loop. And that's our invitation in this story to all of us. No matter what our relationship with consumption or with food. Here is the wisdom that Jesus talks about. Wisdom is known by her actions. Wisdom is known by her children. The sin of gluttony is not an image issue. I said to the folks earlier when we were praying before worship, this is not a sermon about how big is my butt in these pants. This is a sermon about justice. This is a sermon about justice. The sin of gluttony is not an image issue. It's a justice issue. It begins in eating without thankfulness and it extends in withholding from those who are in need. Gluttony is consuming without gratitude and it's interrupted by hospitality. Do you remember in Paul's letter to the Romans how he says, you know, there's no food that isn't wide open to you. Nothing is, nothing's cut off to you, but eat with thankfulness. Eat with thankfulness. And when we don't, I remember a friend of mine, Kim Nolan, she wasn't Kim Nolan at the time. She was Kim Sumner, she, Summer, whatever her last name was. She's been married so many years, I forgot. <laughs> but she went to India on deputation. She and uh, Connie Bernard, and I forgot her main name too, went to India one year on deputation, and they came home. And then whenever Kim and I got together, even if we just had a muffin and a cup of coffee down on the app, she'd stop and pray first. And I found it irritating. And then I learned from it. She'd been in a place where those who were without were inescapable. And she just could never eat without gratitude again. It interrupts everything. It it just interrupts the cycle, eating with gratitude. Once we begin to consume without gratitude, it develops into withholding from others portions of the bounty that we consume for ourselves. And here's where gluttony becomes deadly, not for ourselves, but for our neighbors. It is the insatiable appetite for food and alcohol in the developed world while children starve in other nations. It is the excessive consumption of natural resources that is killing others who are shut out. 
It is choosing to go on doing this, withholding while others are invisible. This is the deadly in the sin and gluttony. It is Nabal's ingratitude that turns David's messengers away empty-handed. It's the rich man's ingratitude that ignores Lazarus starving at the gate. And what rescues Nabal's household for the evil that his gluttony has unleashed upon him? What will rescue us as we live immersed in the the effects of this gluttony of our own foolishness and the foolishness of our culture? Interruptions of hospitality. That's all. Notice that Abigail didn't try to go to Nabal. And actually, Abigail's hospitality towards David and his men should have only been an interruption along the way to his bloody deed. They could have stopped, eaten their fill, been well-nourished, and gone and slaughtered everyone. Who actually interrupted through Abigail's wisdom? Do you remember? The Lord. The Lord. She invoked the help of the Lord for what she could not do, but wisely knew that hospitality would make a way. In her hospitality for David and calling David to remember the Lord, David woke up. He woke up. The Lord will avenge me. I don't have to do this. And he turned around. Abigail's wise hospitality is in contrast to Nabal's foolish gluttony. Where Nabal saw vagrants attempting to deprive him, Abigail saw men, and particularly one man, chosen by God. She wastes no time confronting Nabal for his idiot behavior the next day to let him know, but only after he has been saved. Only after he's been saved. She gives back. She practices hospitality by sharing food and drink with them, and David receives, and the result is blessings and peace on the entire household. Gratitude expressed in hospitality. That's what interrupts the cycle of gluttony. And that's what I'd like to invite each of us to, all of us to, together as a community, as individuals and as a a whole. There's so much shame in our culture around this topic of food. I had so many people stop me up in Larson last week as we're all eating and and, and say, oh, what are you preaching on next week? And I'd say gluttony and they'd say, oh, I might not come. (laughs) But, but, But here's what we learned from Abigail. Just give thanks. For everything else that the culture has told you, we have to be so obsessed about. Stop and give thanks. Just get interrupted. Let yourself be interrupted. Give thanks. Give thanks and choose hospitality. When we interrupt our feast with active, tangible care for the poor and the hungry. I didn't want to preach this part because I knew what I needed to say was, did you at any point this week give any money, any care, any any gift to the hungry? And I didn't. It's humbling. But do you realize that together we can interrupt this? To interrupt our feasting with active, tangible care for the poor and the hungry. The children who are well-fed and sheltered through sponsorships, such as World Vision, less than we spend in a month on fancy coffee. The migrant worker who's served by ministries such as Bob and Gracie Eckblatt's Skagit Valley Organization, Terra Nueva. The, the hungry who are fed by Union Gospel Mission, by the Food Bank, by so many organizations. In Seattle, food for the hungry at, at, at a distance. I, I don't care where it goes. I don't care where it goes. But wisdom suggests that we hand, wisdom doesn't say hand over the whole feast. Wisdom doesn't even say that. But wisdom does ask, can you and I really justify ignoring wholesale the hungry at the gate? Because here's our good news. 
these two small interruptions to our own consumption. Gratitude and feeding the invisible worker and the hungry ones at the gate. Gratitude and hospitality. These tiniest seeds are the ones from which the blessing and peace of Jesus' kingdom extends to our neighbors and our city and our world. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for food. Thank you for drink. Thank you for the abundance of this creation. Thank you that you love to sit and to feast. Thank you that you enjoyed your friends around a meal and around the table. Thank you for your blessing on us when we enjoy food and we enjoy drink and we enjoy the abundance of your creation. And please forgive us for doing so without seeing the others that you are inviting in. Give us the grace to give thanks. Give us the grace to extend this hospitality. And please do what we know we can't. Redeem this sin-broken world. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.